0: It's an old question, but one that seems to be asked with increasing frequency in the era of so-called cancel culture. Can you separate the art from the artist? After essayist and memoir writer Claire Diderot wrote a viral article about her own response to Roman Polanski, she looked further into the lives and works of other problematic figures. The result, Monsters, is a personal and entirely subjective look at creatives like Woody Allen, Miles Davis, Michael Jackson, Pablo Picasso and many more and it invites the reader to really think about how they feel about the art they love that comes to be stained in some way. We sat down to talk about art monsters, creative genius, and self-indictment. I was wondering where to begin this conversation, Claire, and I think probably the best thing to do is to begin where you begin, which is with Roman Polanski. Hmm. Um... Also, because it's almost kind of the most clear cut example, I suppose, of this. So when we're talking about monstrous men, sometimes they're dead and or have been for a long, long time. And so it sort of feels more removed. Uh, Sometimes the details are not quite clear. It's about suspicion or rumour. But there's something very clear cut about Roman Polanski, uh, which you researched and felt like you knew a lot about what had actually happened. And then you watched the films again and then had this sort of surprising response. Could you tell us a little bit about Roman Polanski and you?
1: Ah, Roman Polanski and me. So I had written, I was working on a previous memoir that was about sort of growing up in the sexually predatory 1970s and 80s and what it was like to be a girl in that time. And I, the book, you know, I was writing the book and it sort of seemed like a bit of a drag to write about all this incredibly sad stuff. So I started to work with different forms in this book. So there's like lists and, um, you know, different ways of maps and different ways of approaching the material. And one of the ways was an open letter to Roman Polanski, who, even though it was a memoir, I did not personally know, nor do I. But I kind of used him as a, as a kind of totem figure or straw man uh, to talk about the predatory men of the era. Um, And this was based on his rape of a 13-year-old in the late 70s. Um, So I researched his crime really, really fully and then, and really knew everything there was to know about it. At the same time, I was, had been a film critic. I had, you know, done film studies. I was deeply invested in his work. So for me, Polanski became this very, you know, as I was, as I was, watching the films after learning everything about him, I was very shocked that I was still able to watch the films. That seemed like a surprising uh, dynamic to me. And I found myself in this dilemma. And I think, as you say, he's sort of this very uh, stark example of the dilemma because the crime, he was convicted of the crime, and because he uh, is truly, in my mind, a great filmmaker. So the, the two facts sit kind of immovable when it comes to Polanski. I was very surprised that with what I knew of these facts, I was still moved by the work.
0: The, this is a very confusing thing, isn't it? I, I had a very weird experience myself recently with Polanski, but far, far removed, which was I, I finally got around to watching Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, mm-hmm. where Polanski is this figure who you kind of see in the background, mm-hmm. sort of very happy, funny, sort of running around with, with Margot Robbie's Sharon Tate character. Mm-hmm. And... Because the film is kind of an alternative history, I suppose it has this sort of different. It's almost like taking revenge on the idea of what happened in that whole scenario, um, which I found really interesting. But it sort of it made me think about Palencik's fear: like, what if that hadn't happened to him? Would that have made a difference? And yeah. you talk about a bit about this about how monsters have often been monstered themselves, um, as we know, people who suffer abuse can go on to sort of perpetrate it but of course that isn't a, a get out of jail free card is it because it's sort of it's just an exploration about how people can find themselves uh in the situations they are but it doesn't mean that it makes what they do okay and you i know, found the film was very confusing in that way
1: yeah i mean i think polanski is so interesting in that way because he you know, many terrible things happened to him you know it's sort of like as i say the 20th century sort of happened to him personally and did that Cause him to be a black hole, you know to do this rotten thing we can't know, and I mean there's same similar issues that come up with Michael Jackson and even R Kelly, this idea of something done to someone else, which you know really, if you think about it makes it all the more important to talk about this idea that people need to say when something terrible has happened to them mm-hmm. right for a lot of reasons um you know in this this sort of dynamic we we have this easy term for cancel culture is sort of uh, surrounding this very core concept that people need to speak up and say when something terrible has happened. But that's a sidebar to your question.
0: Well, no, no, but it's cancel culture as much as it's sort of probably one of my most hated phrases in the world because it's something that impacts my working life quite a lot. Um, But also that that as you say in the book, it's such a lazy and dismissive way of talking about something which is really important and complex. Um, so we'll come back to cancel culture um you mentioned michael jackson there and i suppose he's a really good example of one of the most fascinating aspects i think of this book for me which is the concept that you come up with which is the idea of the stain Mm. and for those who are thinking about reading this book and, and don't know what that means this idea that somebody does something awful and that colors of course everything they do afterwards but a sprain a stain spreads outwards and of course it can spread into the the work that came before the awful thing and there's Mm. this really weird question which is like how far does that go back does Mm. it mean that you can't listen for example with michael jackson you can't listen to the jackson five or you can't listen to off the wall or you can't listen to thriller at what point you know how far does it spread tell me a little bit more about that sort of that metaphor that idea and and why it's so important with this discussion
1: yeah, I mean, I, I initially came to the book with the metaphor in place monsters, and uh, partly that was because of the dialogue around the online version of Me Too that really came to the forefront uh, uh in America in late 2017. And that was some of the language that was used in that discourse. But I also was thinking about this book by Jenny Offal called Department of Speculation, in which she writes about art monsters. And in her definition, art monsters are simply people who only have to make art. They don't have to do anything else. And this is usually because they have a wife, right? So there's, she talks about, you know, the writer who has someone who carries his umbrella or has someone who licks his stamps for him. You know, <laughs> my take was like, oh, I hate licking stamps. That sounds great, um, <laughs> fantastic. But so there was sort of different re, different kind of um, meanings and layers of meaning that that word came with. But as I thought about the problem more, I realized that what I meant by this term or the people I was really looking at were people who had, as you said, done or said something, the work itself sort of is inevitably changed by what we know. And that was sort of what I started to think about was this idea of inevitability, like that there's not this decision that we're making to have the work changed, it's just happening. And the stain was such an incredibly useful image, both for that reason, because of the inevitability, right? If something is stained, it's not a choice we're making, it has just happened. And also because of the spreading nature of it that you were talking about, that it can move back, you know, that it spreads out over the work from before and after. And I think what's interesting about the dialogue about whether or not uh, the the work previous to the the bad act is also stained, I think it implies that we're making a choice about how the work is affected, right? That we're deciding that, you know, that. Rockin' Robin, my brother's favorite song when he was five, is now unlistenable. And the fact is that a lot of times, and this is one of the things I'm really trying to get at in the book, when the work has changed, it's not through a decision. We're not deciding, oh, now I'm going to conflate the art and the artist. You know, I know I've been told to separate them, but I'm making a a choice. What's happening is that this collapse is just occurring, whether we want it to or not. And in many we in many ways we can't unknow what we know, and the internet makes sure we know everything, right?
0: <laughs> That's a really good point as well, isn't it? Which is that this idea of knowing so much about people. You know, the subtitle for this book is "Monsters: A Fan's Dilemma," and as fans of whatever you may be into, we now know so much more about the people that we're fascinated by than we could possibly have known. Fifty years ago, certainly a hundred years ago, when stars—whether that be movie stars or painters or whatever it might be, whatever art form they were working in—you would often know hardly anything about their life. And now we can s- often see their self-taken nudes leaked on a website somewhere, or whatever it might be. That we—is it you know we know too much? Maybe there's no mystique now for the the people who we are fans of. Is that part of the problem, or should people be held as accountable as they are by that much information going around.
1: I mean, I think it's a yes and. I think that um <laughs> I think it's interesting this idea of there's no mystique anymore and it's almost I almost think of it more as there's no relief anymore. You know, this, <laughs> this kind of ongoing uh, biographical deluge I think um is not something necessarily we've chosen or necessarily that benefits us. And there's a way in which As I think about, as I've been talking about this book over the last couple of weeks, one one idea that's really emerged for me is that sort of internet and biography are the same thing, Mm. right? That there's this way that the internet runs on biography. Whatever the internet's made of, you know, its cells are filled with with uh, biography. It's you know, it's our biography on social media, and then it's the material we take in, and it's all built on the stories of lives. And I mean, I think that that's worth looking at, just in the sense that somebody's making money off of that and it's not us. So there's a way that we've sort of given ourselves over to this biography machine that does it really benefit us. So all of that, I think that, you know, that is not necessarily a desirable state of affairs at the same time, given I, I, at the same time, that doesn't disqualify or, or, um, mean that people shouldn't say what happened that was wrong, you know, going back Mm -hmm. to that what happens after that is a different question but the i think there's kind of a backfilling where it's like people are horrified by the you know the sort of outrage machine that is the internet and therefore they think that people shouldn't say when something bad has occurred i'm really working hard to step around the word cancel the term cancel because <laughs> um, i have real problems with it but but what happens after the person says something is a separate question from whether or not they should say it.
0: You mentioned there about how the, you know the internet essentially is biography, and one of the again the really clear things about this book is that what you're talking about here is an individual's very subjective response to somebody else's art, and the the, the reason why it's so subjective is because, of course, it's the meeting of the artist's biography and then the viewers biography so the things that have happened in my life are going to affect how I might feel about the biography of the artists in this case uh, in the same way as you've mentioned some of the very personal stories that were told to you by friends had a huge impact on your understanding of what it meant for them and of course that would be completely different to your own personal biography this the consumption of art in that way is so imp- important to the theme of the book isn't it that in that it's this completely subjective response there is not a correct answer to this or a correct way to correct way to respond because of course it's entirely individual
1: yeah, I think that there's you know sometimes when people think that there's sort of an objective response to work or a correct response they're simply not seeing how their own their own biography is informing the work you know when they say that a female's response or a queer person's response you know is is off kilter it's it they're having their own kind of subjective response that's simply invisible, mm-hmm. and that uh, the book is really struggling to to valorize that subjective response um and allow people you know I talk about this this problem of moral feeling you know people present their ideas about an artist and they they kind of are having these very think they're having this like this ethical thought you know which sort of goes to that idea of what should we do which does the stain travel backward will we make a decision you know there's this kind of um prescriptive way of looking at it and i contrast the idea of ethical thoughts with moral feelings which is that we sort of have all these emotions that come up both about the crime but and about the work, right? Like both of these things are things we're responding to emotionally based on our own personal histories and our own subjective experiences. And it's not, you know, responding to things out of those feelings is, you know, not at all. It it almost sounds like I'm saying that's a bad thing and that's not what I'm saying at all. It's it's just a thing that's occurring. Mm -hmm. And sort of acknowledging that and acknowledging the subjectivity of the, audience experience is simply what the book is trying to do, right? Mm. I mean, that's something I'm looking at. And in many ways, the book is not trying to answer what should we do so much as trying to look at what happens when this dilemma occurs. So it's almost more descriptive than prescriptive.
0: Yeah. There's, uh, there's, it's so interesting, the the range of of people and artists that you cover in the book and the different responses as well, because there are some artists whose work doesn't reflect anything about the crime, for example, or there may be something of their crime in the work. And therefore, of course, that has a much more visceral Mm. impact on the viewer. Um, You talk about a few lines of Woody Allen dialogue, which suddenly seem very, very important. But that's often what happens, I think, with these things is that when you reappraise lyrics, for example, of musicians, you kind of go, oh, God, it suddenly feels very different now that I know this about them. And then there's sometimes you mentioned Nabokov and Lolita, where there is no crime necessary that's been committed, but the piece of art is so powerful that it almost has this inference, like what was going on there? Like, why did he write this book? That chapter was really interesting to me because it's almost slightly different to the rest. Mm. The, the piece of work is so powerful in its depiction of, of, of paedophilia that it has this shadow or stain that it almost casts on Nabokov, even though there is nothing to say that he had those feelings at all.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, you just delineated three different ways the work can be affected or can be (laughs) changed. And I think that it's worth sort of giving examples, as you said, Woody Allen is an example of the place where the work and the crime, or I, not, crime's the wrong word, but the the misdeed or the perceived misdeed is are so aligned that it's disturbing in a specific way. And we're talking in particular about Manhattan, which is a film about a 40-something man having a relationship with a 17-year-old girl, woman, whatever, um, and how that sort of prefigures Allen's relationship with Sunyi Previn. And then sort of there's the the kind of uh, dynamic between work and biography that is really contrasted. And I think the clear example of that is Cosby, right? Where the crimes he's accused of is so in contrast to the depiction of family life we saw in the Cosby show and the depiction of of uh, Dr. Huxtable as this Potter familias that that many of us wish, wished we had. Mm. And then finally, you sort of have Lolita where there's this the, the art itself becomes the terrible deed, right? And we have no evidence of a biographical kind of uh, analogy. And uh, I I was really fascinated by this idea of the work going the other direction and staining the person is really what that chapter is about. And, you know, I come around to a very different point of view on Lolita, where it's my belief that it's this work of incredible generosity that he is, that the book is about what it says is about, it's about, Mm -hmm. which is Lolita, which is this girl, and that her silence sort of is the center point around which the book is built, and that that's all very intentional. And so that's not everyone's reading, um, but it's, I think that, you know, I don't have very many really forceful dicta to give people but one of them is i'm not sure we should be punishing people for their subject matter
0: no absolutely not um earlier on you you mentioned jenny ofield's department of speculation which is a, a very much a favorite book of mine um and the concept of the art monster um and i suppose in her case uh obviously writing that book as, as a woman and talking about her sort of family life Um, I was really intrigued by the the chapters that you have in this book which deal with the question of what would make a a a female monster you know what what would Mm -hmm. that be and you alight on this idea of of abandoning children Mm -hmm. um and I know I, I imagine that this is a chapter that some women may struggle with or sort of this idea that this is what a female monster would be would be to do with this idea of maternal abandonment but it was a really interesting chapter in that respect did did you were you ever worried actually I suppose about putting that idea forward that this is this is what a female monster would be or was it just simply a question of do you found those good examples within art that would sort of Mm. tell that story
1: Yeah, I think that, um, I mean, I say in the book very clearly that these are not commensurate uh, misdeeds, right? That there's, it's ridiculous to say that a woman who, you know, shuts the studio door is the same thing as someone who, you know, harasses an underling or commits a crime. And, um, but I wanted to get at the felt experience of monstrosity and kind of the, the flip side of the art monster. If the art monster is someone who can only think about art and is taken care of well, what about the person whose job it is to take care of other people who decides they want to make art? And that's really what that section of the book is about. You know, the the book is written from a really kind of subjective position as a way to kind of give form to the ideas about subjectivity that I put forward. So there's the content about subjectivity, but then I felt it was important to kind of situate myself inside my own point of view in order to kind of tell that story and hold up uphold that point. And so as a person who's written a couple memoirs and who has done a lot of kind of self, you know, autobiographical writing, it was very natural for me about halfway through the book to self-indict, to ask, well, am I a monster? And hmm. to start to look at what that felt like and what that was like for me. And I think that, you know, immediately what feels monstrous to me or uncomfortable to me in my own work as an artist is the moments when I've failed to nurture in order to do my work. And so I started to look at that feeling and I used the stories of Doris Lessing and Joni Mitchell to talk about, you know, more extreme examples of women who've either left children or given up their children in order to make their truly great work, right? And in Joni's case, she believe she was giving her child a better life. Hmm. You know, there's there's all this. And in Doris Lessing's case, she ended up taking care of another child, which is just perfect. Like even the abandoning mothers end up with children. But um, <laughs> there's a way in which the chapter, I hope, sort of turns inside out by the end. And the it's clear to the reader that I'm looking to these women almost as parables for what it is to figure out a way to contain the nurturing part of your life in order to be ambitious in your work right so it's it's sort of it is cheeky to include them in a list of monsters but it, it's more complicated than that
0: absolutely and as you say it, it comes from a place of, of self-indictment that you do share you know the very personal things that you had dealt with Um and they actually help I think propel the book towards its I found quite surprising conclusion but we'll come to the ending a little bit later before we get that I wanted to kind of flip the the gendered coin again and get get to the the men because of this particularly male idea of genius which mm. you explore brilliantly in the book through Picasso and Hemingway this very sort of macho idea of of genius which is that of course the the genius artist who has these genius impulses that they can barely control as they create their art and that those same impulses might be the reason why they behave like a complete asshole. for example and it's something I've always struggled with as somebody who used to be involved in the arts and saw in my case actors behaving appallingly because they were geniuses and I thought mm. but I'm doing the same job as you and I've managed to not behave awfully. And I hope I do a good job of being an actor as well. But, you know, and, and it's like a sort of it's a really fascinating idea, this, isn't it? That it sort of that it allows you to to behave appallingly.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'll talk more about my idea of genius in a second. But I'm curious if that ever if you ever had a, a self-questioning around that dynamic, like if there was ever a way in which you thought, oh, well, Maybe I need to be more of an asshole, and then I 'd be a better actor, I mean, which hey, is so- absolutely which haunts the book, yeah, go
0: ahead yeah, yeah, I mean here here I am as somebody who was an actor for twenty years and stopped doing it. Maybe if I'd been more of an asshole, I would still be acting and uh, having great success, I doubt it somehow but, <laughs> um, but yeah, no, of course that is the thought you have. you kind of go do do I have to behave like that in order to to get that kind of uh, to, to that position? Um, and the same with directors, of course, the, you know the, who have a, the power in the room. Um, there are different types of directors. Some of them are lovely and some of them are tyrannical. And you think, D- do the tyrants think that they have to be tyrants in order to, to be creating a- auteur work, you know, that kind of stuff? Um, yeah. It's really interesting. But sorry, yes. Karen, tell me more about, as you say, the, the ideas of genius as you develop them in the book.
1: Yeah. So I, I you described it so well, this idea of this person, a uh, usually a male person, who is kind of both, both master and servant. And he's, he's sort of master of the people around him, in the case of a director or maybe a you know a musician. Um, direct, he's the master of his materials. He's the master of sort of the world in front of him, where, and the audience even, where he's sort of got this really strong sense of control. But he's subject to basically his own artistic impulses, which are can be expressed in a kind of divine way, or maybe as the muse, or maybe as an you know just a, a strong urge or an energy where there's something outside him that he's channeling. And I think this is such a kind of endemic image to a certain kind of artistry that it's very easy to picture. You know, I talk about Jackson Pollock flinging paint, or there's a way in which he just, he it's flowing through him and he has no control over it. And of course, if there's an impulse th- flowing through you and you have no control over it and it's creating great works of art, the question then becomes, if I'm gonna honor these certain impulses, why wouldn't I honor all my impulses? Or why wouldn't we create structures that help these men honor all their impulses? Because this thing that they're making is so you know, so good, so marketable, so all these desirable things. Um, and, in the book, I trace that idea to Picasso and Hemingway. I mean, I think ideas of genius certainly have come up for hundreds of years. but the I sound like Trump when I say hundreds of years <laughs> the place he's been using recently <laughs> for hundreds of years. Um, but P- Picasso and Hemingway, they sort of they were the first great artist and painter of the mass media era. And they were both, aside from being truly great artists, incredibly canny and active in using, you know, newsreels, magazines, all kinds of media to put across their own image. And that image was, you know, brawling, male, abusive, uh, free above all, like this very, very free image. And so it's not just that they're examples of genius, but I think that they helped shape this kind of funnily narrow idea of what the genius is, that you have to fit these certain parameters. Um, so it's interesting to think about your question about these these actors who be- behave so assholically, like, are they, are they conforming to some ideal of the genius that's exterior to them? Is there some idea that I think they're supposed to act this way? And I think this becomes really uh, an easy to spot phenomenon in the world of rock. Like, I think that the, the kind of rockism or the the great men of rock of the 60s and 70s are to me, Picasso and Hemingway's true children, right? They're the mm-hmm. ones who perform freedom at the very most free level. And to the point that when you get sort of into the 80s with someone like Motley Crue, they've learned those gestures of freedom so completely that they're more preoccupied with doing that than they are. <laughs> with making the music, you know, that 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 is the key part of who they are. Yeah, I always think of um, have you ever in in America, we have uh, in the US, we have this old show on VH1 called Behind the Music, which was like biographical depictions of different bands. And I always think that these bands like Motley Crue, it should be instead of the music because they're (laughs) like doing the behaviors. Yeah. Learning them at the knee of Ozzy Osbourne.
0: The thing is, they're sort of performing the role of rock star and just, as you say, not worrying so much about the art, but definitely doing all the rest of it. I think, yeah, with, actors tend to be, if they're behaving badly, it's because actors are essentially children who get <laughs> indulged by the parent in that relationship, which is, of course, the director or whoever's actually trying to marshal things along. And um, the ones who I suppose are really tricky this idea, as you say, of, of an artist who is indulged, who is facilitated to behave as appallingly as they want to because they're creating great art. And I suppose with acting, that might be those who feel they need to be method. They need to sort of
1: mm. in,
0: you know, car- carry that with them all the time to the detriment of everybody else around them who, of course, has a completely different method of working. But we have to indulge this one person who's sort of doing that. You can tell I'm not a big fan of method.
1: <laughs> well, acting. That's so, right, right. But I, that's so interesting. I'd never thought about... This is really off topic, but the coercive nature of somebody who's doing one specific technique—in this case, method acting—in the context of other people who aren't, yeah—and the way that he's sort of elevating himself in that moment because he's more committed,
0: yeah, exactly. I'm doing I'm doing proper acting. I don't know what you lot are all doing. Um, Trying to have fun often, but (laughs) yeah, I suppose this happened on Succession, didn't it? There was a lot of stuff about jeremy strong's very different methodical approach to his character whilst everybody else was sort of just doing the job you know and i think brian cox has sort of said it's not helpful if you've got one person who's demanding a particular way of doing things to the detriment of everybody else anyway as you say we've gone way off topic i'm going to bring us sort of claw us back i was of course as the representative of a of, of a bookshop in this case um I was intrigued by the chapters where you talk about, I guess, the the capitalist consumption of art and this idea that you can show your disapproval or should you show your disapproval of, say, somebody like Woody Allen or Roman Polanski by not paying money to go and see their films or whatever it might be. You know, we were just talking there about Hemingway and Picasso, both dead, of course, very little that can be done about that you can see the paintings it's not going to have any financial impact but now there are several people who are still working creating art and there's this question about whether you can hurt them by not paying for it and you you sort of pretty much rubbish that idea don't you because you talk about how what that does is just simply contextualizes the art within a capitalist system and actually lowers the impact of what you're doing because you're playing within the structures of of something that already exists that was a very poor description of what you wrote. No, but please, I, that
1: was—I mean—that's—it's a pretty complex. I think you—I think you did well. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to what we <laughs> to our tortuous avoidance of the phrase cancel culture yeah. from earlier in our conversation. I think that there's this really interesting dynamic where somebody says something terrible that happened to them. And then we sort of leapfrog ahead to the consumer response, right? Like, so, you know, you, you, I don't know, like you, you're you upset by what Kevin Spacey did. You're never going to watch American Beauty again. That's not a great example because I hate that film. But, you know, sort of on all kinds of levels, the, that's the argument you hear. Well, you're just going to give up the art. And, and it's really interesting to me, this kind of leaping from, this dynamic of someone saying something rotten to, well, what are you going to do individually when there's Mm. so much stuff in between that can be, you know, about institutional change, about some kind of collective response. Um, But we're so set, I mean, it's always so uncomfortable to use big words like capitalism, but we're so set in our roles as consumers that we sort of Revert to that as the way to solve the problem, which is really a powerless way to solve the problem. All you're doing is sort of reinforcing your very narrow role, which is to consume something. And hmm. that, you know, that is not a place where you're going to have impact or find satisfaction. And I think that I think that if you don't want to give these people your money and that's your choice and that feels like the right choice. That's I have no argument with that. It's not that I think that people should be out like sending PayPal to, you know, sending, sending money via PayPal to Roma Polanski. Like I'm not, it's not that it's everybody has their own sort of response. I, but it is my belief that this sort of framing the question as a consumer question is simply a narrowing of our possible responses. And there's other responses. I was talking to a young writer a couple of weeks ago, and she was saying that there's this feeling that if you if you kind of perform a boycott, you're providing a service to the victim, mm. and you're providing support to the victim, and and that maybe there's better ways to use that impulse.
0: Um, I'm going to bring us towards the end of the book because, as I said, I found I found the conclusion quite surprising, uh, and. I don't know why I found it surprising because of course you you're laying the groundwork throughout the book but I was really intrigued by the the as I say the personal things that you shared about yourself Mm. and then this idea which you mentioned comes from a conversation you had with a, a friend of yours which is of course to think about it on a personal level we're very removed from people like Polanski and Woody Allen and um Michael Jackson and what we need to do is to think about how we might treat and do treat the monsters in our own lives. Could you tell me a little bit more about that conversation and, and why it led to the conclusion that you got yeah. to?
1: Yeah. 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 Happy to. Um... I was sitting around a campfire with a bunch of friends and one of my friends talk, Started came, came up to me and he sought me out to say, are you still writing that book about art monsters? And I was like, you know, alas, yes, I still am. <laughs> and um, he said, well, I've been thinking about it a lot because I was thinking about my stepfather, Um, who was a really rotten guy. And I won't go into chapter and verse, but my kid had, my friend had a really, really difficult childhood, partially because of this man and who eventually ended up in prison. And my friend said, you know, he, before his death, we reconnected and it was really meaningful to me. And it was meaningful to me because I still loved him, you know, even after all he had done, I still loved him. And that moment really changed my approach to the book because it kind of reinforced my understanding that some of these questions are about love, you know, that it's both love of the work, but also love of the people in our lives. And that sort of not only that when somebody's done something terrible, we still have to navigate our way toward having a relationship with them. And that maybe some of these questions we're asking about Art and the artist are sort of a laboratory or a workshop for looking at these other questions, but also then, of course, you know, how can people love us for after rotten things that we've done? What does that look like? Because, you know, that's where that kind of compassion or acceptance of another person comes from—is from acknowledging that maybe we haven't always been the best. So, opening the book into this question of human love, it was once. It was, it was just something that was so clear to me that that felt so inevitable, you know. even though it wasn't what I had started writing, that it was mm. where it needed to end up. And I hope it isn't too much of a swerve.
0: But as does. I say, it's one of those things where I was surprised by it because I guess I, I thought that as you're reading a book where you think the question is like, can you separate the art from the artist? Should you get et cetera, et cetera? That, that I of course wasn't thinking that the conclusion might be you you can't and maybe you shouldn't <laughs> um uh, because whilst we look at these things which as i say feel very removed from us because they're great works of art by people that we don't know as you say you want to make it more personal, because that's the way to really think about things. And this is all part of this idea that you also have, which is that you don't like using the phrase we when talking about things that you have to make it personal. What do you actually, this is your personal response to something. So you have to be brave enough to say, I feel this, I think this, you know, and that's quite a hard thing to do, because of, again, we'll have to say cancel culture. One of the worst aspects of that is the kind of mob like aspect to it, which of course comes from feeling great affinity and power by being aligned with other people to kind of go, this is how we all feel about this thing. And of course, that's a load of people with very different experiences, uh, which may or may not be completely connected to what they're talking about. But your very personal response as you share with each of these artists, and I suppose that's also shared by other people, it's particularly I think in the Miles Davis chapter, which is just fascinating, is this thing about being so in love with somebody and their work being hugely disappointed by something that they've done, and then having to say, but I can still watch that film or listen to that album. And that feels to me a very honest response to what is a very complicated program. It would be very simple to kind of go, they're dead to me.
1: Right. Well, and I, I think that, um, you know, a lot of, you know, I was talking about my friend speaking to me about his experience with his his stepfather and how that changed the book. But the the book was also really changed by reading the essay about Miles Davis by Pearl Clegg, hmm. where she's, it, the, the essay is called Mad at Miles. And I foreground it in the final chapter of the book. She talks about how she, because of who she is, because of her subjective biography, because of, you know, her own biographical experience, she falls in love with Miles. You know, she's, he's woven in, in the way that music can be, he's woven in to her, the eras of her life as she sort of describes them, you know, the, her divorce and dating and the music's always there. And she loves it in that way. We love music. And then she finds out about Miles being an abuser. And her response to that is also subjective and emotional. You know, she's as a survivor herself, she's upset as a black woman, she's angry at him, especially because she doesn't want to be angry at at a, you know, a black man. And she talks about all these feelings. And her subjective response, she, she takes this incredible risk in this essay of really residing in that, in that subjective response and not stepping to authority, not stepping to, I'm going to tell you how to feel. She mm. just describes her feelings. I mean, even the title of the essay, Mad at Miles, leads mm. with feeling. And so, you know, when I read that, when I read that and it changed the book It didn't change the book because I read it and thought well she's right and I'm wrong or that's her experience and I'm going to get on board because that's the right way to look at it. It was it made me see what it how powerful it was for her to be in her feeling and her subjectivity and in her love of Miles because that's the real problem. None of this matters if we don't have love for the work. Mm -hmm. And so she sort of opened this door to me to to kind of be in my own subjective response and write the book from that place. And then what I hope is that in turn, that can be something that opens up toward the reader where they're thinking about their own biography, their own subjective response to the question.
0: It's just such a fascinating area. I could honestly talk to you for another 40 minutes about this, Claire, but I won't because that's very mean. You have a day to get on with. Um, But uh, very early on, you, you talk again about another conversation where somebody was sort of saying that even after everything, they still... Love the work. And it's just, you say, it's just such a perfect phrase, even after everything, <laughs> sometimes the most awful things, and but we still have this kind of attachment to certain things. And I, I think that's just a really fascinating area for you to have looked into honestly and I really appreciate as well as I say the personal things that you share in this book it's made me instantly want to go and read uh, your other memoirs because of knowing that there'll be so much in them so thank you so much for this book and, and thank you for giving me some time to talk to you about it yeah
1: thank you for having me I really appreciate it
0: Monsters A Fan's Dilemma by Claire Didera is out now